0: If you, uh, if you have your Bible, open them up to Ephesians chapter 5. The problem is when I have this far in the back of my Bible, my Bible won't stay open. So we can do it like this. So we're in the middle of our series uh, over community. We've been throughout this year kind of highlighting a couple key points of what we want to be, some key factors of a church. We've said we want to be life-giving, we want to be gospel-rooted, we want to be spirit-filled, we want to give people the chance to belong, and we want to be this community. So right now we're talking about the idea of community, and what we're doing is we're using the model of the Trinity to understand who we are in our community. And I know that's kind of a little bit in depth and detailed, but a couple weeks ago, we did a whole sermon about who the Trinity is, and we said that God himself exists in an eternal community of love. God is love because God is the Father loving the Son, loving the Holy Spirit, loving the Son, loving the Father, loving the Holy Spirit. You get what I mean by that. And so we said that because that's who our God is, and because we are made in that image, that we too are created to need community of love. And so we're exploring how all of this works out as uh, we open up and explore Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I was studying this this week and I came across this quote, I just had to give it to you, because sometimes people that are far, far smarter than me uh, actually say what I'm trying to say, and Eugene Peterson just did that in an incredible way. Here's his quote, I'll put it on the screen for you. Um, God is God only relationally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God creates only relationally. God exists only relationally. God gives only relationally. God is a gather, or the church is a gathering of Christians under the conditions of God's relationality, and Ephesians is an immersion into relationality. I thought that was a really good thing. He said that way better than I could. So we said, in the Trinity, there's four basic truths, There's the truth of full equality, that God the Father is fully equal of God the Son, who is fully equal to God the Holy Spirit. But even in that full equality, there is also, number two, glad submissions, what we're going to talk about today. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll do joyful intimacy, that there's joyful intimacy in the Trinity, and there's still mutual difference. So we're breaking down these four things and then layering that over our church community of what that means. So if last week, full equality was like the one that we all love and affirm in our Western culture and understanding, this week is like the polar opposite of that, because we as Americans do not like submitting I'll be honest, I, I even struggle with this to some extent and like, I am a class A rule follower to the T. If the rule exists, it exists for a reason and that reason is probably my benefit. Let's follow all the rules. That was like, I was that kid everyone else hated in school because I was like, you're not following the rules. I'm going to tell the teacher on you. Um, follow all the rules, but even I get these moments where like someone tells me something and then my internal instinct is like to rebel against that. So uh, Haley and I will be working out in the gym and I'll be finishing up some rep that we're doing and I'll, I'll finish up and she'll look at me and she'll say, you didn't do form very well on that last one, you probably need to go back and redo it. You ever have someone say something like that and like, that's my wife, I love her more than anything else in the world and I wanna look at her and say, don't talk to me like that. I do what I wanna do. You're lucky I'm here at all with you. Like, and, and then like, so we've had on multiple occasions, times where she, out of this pure, just absolute, innocent form, wants to say, hey Philip, Ooh, she doesn't say that. She wants to say, um, hey hey, Philip, uh, you're, you're gonna hurt yourself if you do that exercise like that. You need to pay attention to your form. And then I'll come off and be like, my form was just fine, thank you very much, as if I can see it. And then multiple times we've had this conversation that I have to come back and apologize to her and I, like yeah that's fine if it happens once but i can't tell you how many times we've had this exact interchange of words so like even in my own dna there's something about like submitting that i absolutely hate and want to rebel against because as much as we love the idea that everyone is created equal at least in thought you know the, the practice of that may be a little bit more needing to be expounded on in american culture but as much as we love the idea of everyone being made equal we equally hate the idea of having to submit to someone else, which leads me right into Ephesians chapter 5. Because reading Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6 in, in our modern Western context usually puts that pit in our stomach of, I'm, I'm not sure I like this. And if that doesn't, then good for you. But let me read it, and we'll see if that gets there. Or not. Let me start. I'm going to start out in verse uh, 18. This is Paul writing to the church, and he says, Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. And he's going to go on and explain what that looks like. filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart unto the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he drops this one in verse 21, submitting to one another in fear of Christ Now, a lot of times we start out with verse 22 and we miss that first point. And what we end up doing when we start with verse 22 and miss this first part of everyone submit, we we lead ourselves into some problematic interpretation. So I want to start there. And with that key verse in mind, then we jump into verse 22. So everyone submit to one another in fear of Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord, not to people, knowing that whatever good, de- uh, whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him." So what's your guttural reaction to that? What, what's, what's the reaction? Now, for those of us that grew up in church, likeliness is we've read this uh, 150,000 times, we've heard it read over weddings, and we just respond to it. Yeah, cool, that's great. But what we're missing is if you are not new, or if you are not accustomed to this thing we call church, and let's say maybe it's your first time here, you've never really even read the Bible, and you come across this thing that's wives submit to your husband, and children obey your parents, and slaves submit to your masters. There's some things in that that if you were to say that in any other context, you were liable to get hit, right? So how do we make sense of all of this and actually trust it for what it is, being God's word applicable to Christians, in 2022. And I think to understand that well, we have to start by putting ourselves in the shoes of a first-century Roman Greco culture. So again, I have to do this, and if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but we need to take 10-15 minutes and just kinda nerd out a little bit over culture of the first-century person and what that looked like. So, And by the way, I have really cool things, like quotes from Quintilian in here, it'll be great. That's not even just a number, that's an actual person that lived. So, let's kick into this. Let's start out with marriage. Marriage in the Roman Greco culture had far more to do with status and social status and finances and legal matters than it ever had to do with being in love. In fact, there are documented stories from this time period among pagan Romans, uh, where men were encouraged to give children to his wife so that he can have heirs, but then every other physical desire could be fulfilled at his local temple. And so you would use your wife to have kids, but your own pleasure and your own whatever intimacy that you have as a husband could go and be found in other people. Now the wife was to have to stay home and be locked into what she did in raising the children. So Paul's philosophy here already, just in comparison to that, is revolutionary. In fact, it's so revolutionary that if you go back and read early writers, even in the Roman Empire, they would be noting things like how Christianity seemed to be particularly attractive to women because it was the one place they could go and find dignity in their culture. So Tertullian would write things like, Men are crying out that women can go and find dignity in this Christian church. So we start seeing this pattern unfold. So whatever Paul means when he says, wives, submit to your husbands, it cannot be suppression and oppression and taking advantage of. Whatever Paul is saying is something contextually radical to his own day and age. Ephesians 5 is not just some sort of biblical justification for, well, the wife has to submit to me and I get to do whatever I want to do. That's not what Ephesians 5 is communicating. And as bad as wives may have had it in early Roman Greco culture, children had it worse. In fact, some historians believe that the major or one of the major factors of the early church's growth was that so many Roman people, when they had kids, uh, if they couldn't tend to that child, uh, would just go drop it in the wilderness uh, to leave it to die of exposure, particularly young girls because uh, you wanted boys because that was where your heirs would be. So if you had a girl and you couldn't take care of her, you would just go drop her in the wilderness uh, just to die. And what the church would do is go out, and if they found a, a child, they would take that child back in and raise it as their own. So historians will say this may be one of the key reasons that the church was growing. They were going and intentionally collecting all of these abandoned children and raising them as their own in the church and in the way of Jesus. But that being said, as bad as women had it, children had it worse. And so Paul's going to come in and he's not just going to say children obey your parents, but he's also going to say in verse four, fathers don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in training and instruction. You see, in the Roman culture, children were viewed only for their usefulness. What do they offer to my occupation? What do they offer to my life? And if they didn't fulfill that expectation, then you punished them or got rid of them. And often punishment was even somewhat aggressive. So Quintilian, who was a kind of orator at the time, was writing about this. And he said, I I disapprove flogging for children, although that is the regular custom. And and so, by the way, he says flogging. This isn't... Like, we could have a conversation about go out and get a switch from the tree back in the backyard. I don't know if you guys had grandmas that did any of that stuff. But this wasn't even that. This was a literal flogging that, that parents would give to their children. Paul is intentionally coming against that. It's revolutionary. So, in the Roman world, children were only viewed for their usefulness. In the Christian community, children were viewed and valued for bearing the image of God that they in themselves were image bears is revolutionary for women it's revolutionary for children and then we get to this part in, in verse 5 of slaves obey your human masters and it's really really important in our context to understand this context because we live in a time where our nation has a history of this and if you want to debate whether it's significant or not significant or we should be beyond that the reality of it all is we have spent far more time writing the backs of that than we have overcoming it or at least living in the midst of it. So how do we deal with Paul's command in chapter 6 verse 5 into now? Contextually again we have to remember that this is a massive difference between ancient Near Eastern slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. And so Paul will never ever justify the treatment of a slave based on ethnic race or nationality or anything like that. He will never allow justification for any sort of inhumane treatment. In fact, we, we studied thoroughly last year the book of Philemon where Paul's going to send Philemon back to, uh, or send Onesimus back to Philemon and say, hey, I need you to treat him rightly, Philemon. So rather, what Paul is dealing with here is this idea uh, that often gets translated sometimes as bond servants. And so what bond servant is, is it's uh, where someone would willingly choose uh, to work uh, for a property owner for a determined amount of time. And at the end of that time, that servant was set free. So they would come in and they would say, hey, if you'll pay me this, give me a place to live, feed me, I will work your land for you. And then I will become your slave, so to speak. Uh, These were contractual arrangements between family. And there are definitely examples of where this was abused and and not used correctly. But uh, N.T. Wright, who is a famous theologian and scholar, he looks at this and he says, "Uh, the Roman world ran on slavery, much like our world runs on electricity. And so uh, estimated 33% of ancient Romans were slaves. That's one out of every three people lived in this kind of relationship. And so Paul, rather than kind of to upend the system as a whole, which would have been seen as scandalous or threatening or possibly even treasonous at his time, Paul is far more interested in giving dignity to slaves. And it's the church then, because of this, that's starting to take the first steps to stand against slavery in all of recorded history. So again, old Greek author guy named Aristides. Here's what he wrote. If any Christians have male or female slaves and they persuade them to become Christians, they call them brother without distinction. This is a guy 80 years after Paul's writing, not a Christian himself, but he's looking at this and he's saying, hey, these slaves that, that are call themselves Christians, when they come to the gathering that is the church, they no longer are considered slaves, but they're called brother and sister. There's something happening within the dynamic of this thing called church. So here's what I want you to see out of all of this. I know that's a lot of just historical stuff, but I want you to understand that Paul's idea in Ephesians 5 and 6 is culturally radical. It is just revolutionary of what he's trying to drop because the heart of this passage is not wife, submit to your husband. It's not children, obey your parents. It's not slaves, submit to your masters. The heart of the passage is in verse 21 where Paul's gonna drop this idea that when you are filled with the Spirit, the evidence of that is that you will submit to one another. Everyone submits to one another. And why? Well, out of reverence to Christ. Everyone submit to one another out of fear for Christ. See, Paul's why, why do we submit to one another? It's not just some why that's like, well, that's what the rules say, so you have to do it, I'm sorry. Paul's not coming up with some policy manual of, all right, we need to figure out some hierarchy order of how this is going to work, so this submits to this, who submits to this. Paul's reasoning behind this is not a word, so if you don't like that word, submit, that's fine, it's not a word, it's a person. He says, no, you submit because of Jesus. So then, living according to Jesus is submitting. That Jesus' life and the way he lived and the teachings he taught draw us back to this reality because Jesus is constantly redefining authority and greatness and power. See, this is far more about Jesus than it is just obeying blind commands. Jesus Jesus redefines greatness. So for Jesus, positional authority, cultural greatness, power dynamics was never for the sake of being served but always for the sake of serving others. We have multiple explanations, but I'll just take you through three quick passages. Last week I mentioned Matthew 20, where James and John come to, or their mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, will you make them the greatest in your nation, set them at your right hand and left hand? And then Jesus comes back in and he drops this bomb on them. He says, the world grasps that power to lord it over others, but it's not that way in my kingdom. It's not about the power dynamic. On the contrary, whoever among you wants to become great must become a servant. And there's a story in John 13 where from the other Gospels we know that they're sitting at the Passover meal and the disciples are debating on who's going to be the greatest in heaven. That's their conversation topic for the night dinner. Hey, who do you think is going to be the best? Who, you think I'm going to be the best? And Jesus then stands up from the table, takes off his outer garment, and begins to wash the feet of every one of his disciples. And then after that, he stands up and he says, hey, I need you to love each other as I've loved you. You consider yourself a servant over each other. And in the classic of Philippians chapter two, when Paul's gonna come in and he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. We think that this was probably a song the early church would even sing at their gathering. Adopt the attitude of that of Christ Jesus who existing in the very form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. No, he's fully equal. But instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus does not merely command submission, but he in the very essence of his being embodies submission. Submission to the Father through obedience. Submission to humanity through the giving of himself. His submission is by no means a commentary on his value. No, he is still always in full equality with God the Father. But he gives up his divine privilege without becoming any less divine. And this submission is wholly voluntary. It is his gift to the Father. You see, it's through the lens of Jesus that we find submission is not an obligation to be lorded over others. It's a gift to be given for the benefit of others. wives you submit to your husband not out of this obligation of abuse or anything like that, but as a gift to be given as the church gives their submittance to Jesus. And we have to begin here. Because if we don't start here and then draw implications from this point, we will come to a, an authoritative model where we tend towards dehumanization, and rather than kingdom dignity, we start dehumanizing other people. And maybe you've dealt with churches like this in the past. Maybe you yourself have dealt with marriages that function like this. And if that's the case, I just, the best I can, I want to try to gently call you back to the teaching of Jesus. Or at the life and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the authoritarianism of power is laid to rest, and the humility of submission is glorified. This is the upside-down world that Jesus is building through his gospel. And this is Paul's starting point, and it leads to a contextually radical point of thinking Two more things I want to point out just that's radical in this text, and then I'll draw some implications, and we'll close out with all of that. But let me start here. Um, If you'll notice, just order of how this whole thing works. Paul gives three couplets. He's going to give wives, husbands, then he's going to say children, parents, and he's going to say slaves, masters. We in our modern context don't pick up on this because we don't see it. But if you go back and you compare Paul's letter, particularly to like the Stoic letters of the day. So Paul's not the only person writing letters and sending it through the Roman Empire. It's a very common thing that's going on. Particularly the Stoics would write letters. And what they would do is they would send letters typically to like governments. And so uh, we have one letter that's from a Stoic philosopher to the government of Sicily. But rather than addressing it to the government of Sicily, this guy addresses his letter to Lucilius, who's the procurator of Sicily. I always want to say procurator. Is that the right word? Um, That's the leader of Sicily. So in in stoic thought of mind, you never address the people who are sub or below or, or inferior. You only ever address the one superior person. So we're just addressing Lucilius, not anyone else, even though it's made for all of Sicily. So if Paul was writing in the context, he would have just said, I'm writing to husbands because I think they're most important. But Paul doesn't think that. So rather what he does is he lists wives and husbands children and parents slaves and masters and then furthermore order also matters greek is a highly inflected language which means you don't you know we do a subject verb predicate that's how we do yes getting history grammar today it's a fun day to be at first baptist i'm sorry if this is incredibly boring but um so so yeah you We have subject, verb, predicate, that's how you say it, but in Greek, you can actually put the words in whatever order you want, and the ending of the word determines its functionality in the sentence. And so the way Greek works is you always put the most important thing first. So most of the time when Paul's going to write, uh, even if Jesus is the predicate of the sentence, Paul's going to put the name of Jesus first because it's most important. So you list most important first. I think there's something significant here about, about Paul listing wives, then husbands, children, then parents slaves then masters see Paul and I'm putting a lot on the back of context here but I think it brings us to this clear point all of this combined and here's the point Jesus's community is a new humanity of glad submission Jesus's community is a new humanity of glad submission starting in verse 21 where Paul just drops the Everyone take this heart of Christ and submit to one another. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands and trust yourself to him as he lives as Christ, giving him the gift of your love, your trust, your submission. And then then husbands, you may read and you say, well, the word submit's not in there for husbands. And you would be right, that's true. But it's far, far greater. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then the next two words are, and, gave, that Jesus loves and he gives himself. Husband, you love your wife like Jesus loves the church and you give yourself for her. And when I say give yourself, and when Paul says give yourself, what he means is not just a little bit of your time, you give everything you are to that one person. You sacrifice everything you have, you lay down your entire life, you absorb every last cost for this one person you've been given to love. Do you know what we call that? could give it to you this way if you play a sport for eastern or for a sports team and your coach comes to you and says i need you to give everything you have for this team that doesn't mean that you get the freedom then to go that night eat 17 donuts and a bag of popcorn and come back to practice the next day Like i gave everything i ate some donuts give everything means that you give your diet you give your time you give your effort you give your energy you give your knowledge you give your talents for the sake of something that's more than you this is what Paul's talking about when it comes to husbands and marriage. Another way we might say that when we say give everything is you submit yourself to that. You say, it's not about me, it's all about you. You submit your time, your training, your talents, your team. And children submit to your parents through obedience. Then he's going to come in and say, parents, train and build up your children. You know what it takes to train up and build up children? Time hobbies, giving up your own desires for the sake of that one-year-old that wants to cry every single time you take them out in public, and so you're standing there at the restaurant while everyone else is sitting eating doing this, right? Do you know what you call that? That's submitting to a one-year-old. It's a weird way of thinking about it, but you're saying, hey, I'm going to give up my time for this meal for the sake of entertaining this child, This is Paul's expectation for every relationship within the church. And we could keep on. I don't have time for that. But it's worth noting in this that Paul's going to go through. and He's going to give all of these commands of wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters. But he doesn't give any practicals. And I think that we, a lot of times in the church, really wish that Paul would have given us some practicals. Because what we often do is we read this and we give a bunch of okay-sos. You we know, read wife, submit to your husband, husbands love your wife. Okay, so husbands should control all the finances. But is that what the Bible says? It doesn't say that. If Paul wanted to have said that, he would have said, husbands love your wife and make sure to manage the finances really well. But Paul doesn't say that. We read this and we think, okay, so women should stay at home with the children while men go out to work. But does the text say that? It doesn't say that. See, Paul is not just writing for one particular culture in one particular context. Paul, I think, knows that he's writing in a way that is going to traverse time span of thousands of years and be just as relevant today as it was back then. So he doesn't give you practicals. Instead, he just says, no, 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 it's a heart issue. You know, Paul isn't saying, okay, so men get to make all the family decisions, and wives are just the skier behind the boat getting flung about, and they just have to go wherever he pleases. That's never the story the Bible tells. The fact is Paul is not interested in giving practicals of how this plays out because it's going to vary from culture to culture to family to family to marriage to marriage. Rather, Paul is far more interested in building a culture behind the command rather than reading off every list of possible situations. And we could go on on that too, but here's the point if we want to extend this a little bit further. Jesus' community is a new humanity of glad submission where everyone submits, where everyone submits. Philippians 2, 3, before he gives that poem about Jesus, says this, don't do anything out of selfishness, but always consider the other more important. The Bible expects that we, in the image of God, are fully equal, but we are always willing to gladly submit to one another. Why? Why? One more quote. Richard Foster, um, who's a profound Christian author, he writes this. He says, submission is the spiritual discipline that frees us from the everlasting burden of always needing to get our own way. How do you like that as a burden? The burden of needing to get your own way. Submission is a spiritual discipline that frees us from the everlasting burden of always needing to get our own way. In submission, we are learning to hold things lightly. We are also learning to diligently watch over the spirit in which we hold others, honoring them, preferring them, and loving them. An absolute vital part of church community is submitting, giving up yourself for the sake of others, giving up your time for the sake of many, giving up your resources for the sake of someone that may need it more. Now, if you've been listening closely, if you've read this closely, you'll notice that Paul's commands in chapter 5 and 6 actually never once are directly dealing with the church. Now, he'll say things like, now, this is like Jesus in the church, but he never gives any commands within the church. So why does Paul choose to focus marriage and family and work rather than focus church? And to be fair, this is an argument from implication rather than an argument given in the text explicitly. But, but I think if we could go back in time and ask Paul, he would say something along the lines of, the practice of sincere glad submission always starts in the commonplace. The practice of sincere glad submission always starts in the in the commonplace. Before this practice of submitting can ever be healthy and applied within a context of the church, it must start in the most common of places. It must start in your home. See, I think I've come to the conclusion that anyone can submit an hour of their time, right? It is not that difficult for the millionaire businessman to give an hour of his time in the soup kitchen and submit to a homeless person. It's noble, charitable, that's great. It's not hard. What's far more difficult is to go home and to have him give everything he is to his wife. You see, it's home where we find our our Christianity most challenged usually. Home is where it gets messy because it's where we're often at our worst. Home is where our devotional love to Jesus is most tested. Home is where uh, we come as close to possible to this. And Paul understands that a strong church begins with strong marriages and strong families that take their standard rhythm of submitting and they carry it with them as they encounter one another spiritually in their own Christian community. So Ephesians 5 then is a radical call to submission in every relational category. But most prominent are the relationships you deal with on a day-to-day basis. Husbands and wives, children and parents. Maybe we could add into this one, student and professor, employee and boss. Submission with the commonplace that holds within it the most complexity, but yet always holds the most potential. Most potential for what? Chapter 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, and then he says, this right here, this is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Do you understand married couples that you living this out in glad submission, be it as wives as a gift of submission to your husbands or husbands as your self given love to your wife is a mirrored reality of Christ's love for the church. So I'd have to step back and say, could it be that one of the reasons we've lost influence within our cultures is because we're so quick to come and stand against things like, like homosexuality and we say, oh, this is so bad and it's sinful. And yeah, fair, the Bible calls it sinful, absolutely. But we stand over here and preach against it while living in void, dark, empty marriages of ourselves. And so what the culture sees is not an alternative of what God intends, but just a war that's raging against the two groups. Could it be that we're living in cold, dark, void, empty marriages of apathy or abuse? We're living in commitment-less cohabitation. We're living in unfaithful, broken unions. And if that's the case, well, it's no wonder the world doesn't see how Jesus loves them. But when this gets lived out, In every part of our lives, including the most common part of us, when a wife makes it her aim to honor and know and see and hear her husband, when a husband equally makes it his aim to sacrifice himself in love to his wife, then the home becomes the visible picture of the invisible reality of God's redemption to us. A visible picture of how Jesus loves his bride. You see, so often we imagine that the task of the church is to prove that the Bible is accurate or to validate the Bible's claims. And yeah, there's a part of that that's true, but I think we miss it because the task of the church far more often is to be a picture of the dignified, abundant life that Jesus has offered within the biblical story that starts with the eternal triune Godhead where all are fully equal, but all live in glad submission. So, what do we do? What do we do? We have this tendency when we read stuff like this to, to then turn it around and, and say stuff like, you need to submit your time, your tithe, and your talents. And we make it all start with a T and it sounds really pretty and alliteration, right? But that's not what Paul does. Paul's not saying, hey, I want you to come and submit all this stuff to the church. Paul's saying, no, no, you need to go back to your most commonplace and see how this applies to you wherever you may be. That you should take a posture of submittance in your everyday life that leaks then into the church, leading us to live. And it's a phrase that he drops some 11 times in this passage. It's the phrase, as Christ, or something along those lines. So over and over again, Paul's going to say, submit to one another as to Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And we could go on. But here's the idea. This is not just a command for wives or children or or workers or slaves. This is a command for all of us, me included. So what might it look like if we took Jesus' methodology seriously? if we became a church of glad submittance? And the typical answer is we would say things, well, we would just get walked all over. We would constantly be getting walked over. We would would just be getting taken advantage of. Philip, we would get crucified out there if we were to try this. And might I just remind you that that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And what did God do with it? How did God take Jesus' submittance, which led to his crucifixion, that then leads to Jesus having the name above every name. You see, it's in God's upside-down upside down kingdom that those who submit become great. This is what the Bible wants us to be. It's what it wants us to do. Now, how that works out in your own individual life is something you need to pray and ask God about. Who do you need to submit to? Who do you need to reach out to? How does this work? So I'm gonna give you a few minutes just to pray about that as we sing. Maybe you've just never submitted to Christ in the first place, and you want to come do that this morning so that you can see how God takes humble submittance and elevates it to forgiveness and grace and all the amazing things of abundant life. I'll be right here. I'd love to pray with you. If not, maybe you just need to ask, what does this look like if I apply it in my most common place? And how do I become more like Jesus as I serve him? Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for just this text. I pray that you would help us to see the value of glad submittance, God, that we are to be a people who submit to you and to one another, not out of this idea of being humiliated or thinking there's an offset of dignity. No, we know we are all fully equal, made in your image. But to live like Jesus lived, God, give us that heart through the power of your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.